Hey guys, this is our weekly podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We're so glad that you decided to join. We are a church family passionate about seeing people worship Jesus, grow in their faith, and serve those around them. If you would like to learn more about Cornerstone, please visit us at cornerstoneione.org, or you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You know, uh, there is a ladies' lunch coming up, and it uh, just makes me think about uh, last week, I announced it one service and didn't, but the ladies just had a ladies' uh, dinner, actually. Uh, it was out in the parking lot, twinkly lights, the whole thing. Uh, uh, about 40 plus ladies showed up and it was a really neat time. So if you are a lady and I, I hear this sometimes where you're like, I just want to get connected with other ladies and I hear guys saying the same thing. Uh, we do provide some of those things to help facilitate those environments because here's the deal. If you're new to Cornerstone, we talk about Cornerstone as a family because I think the Bible talks about the local church meeting together, treating each other like brothers and sisters. So we get tight. We get tight through small groups, through serving together, elbow and elbow, from, from selling hot dogs, to working at the food bank, to sending money overseas, to doing community stuff. We're just involved. And so we do get tight here. And so when you come in, what I realize, and I think we're sympathetic towards, is it is hard to break into the family sometimes. So ladies, we tend to surround you with food. And then, and, and guys, we're going to play flag football in November. That's, that's the idea. And we're going to get to know each other. Okay. Strengths and weaknesses. No, we do like some men's breakfasts and stuff like that. And I've said this before. We used to, I used to do, uh, when, I, when we do the men's breakfast, I would do like a, uh, like devotional, you know, because I want to spiritualize everything we do. And, uh, and I, I just decided we start, we're going to pick up the uh, men's breakfast again. And Bob Hull and I were talking about uh, what that would look like. And I, we just did away with the devotional because I was like, what are we trying to accomplish? And we want these guys to have an environment where we can just get to know each other. And then we can go about our lives because we realize the men and women that are adults in our church, you guys have families or lives and you're busy. And so we want to still provide that. And so what we do with the guys is I just decide, hey, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to literally tell them, hey, we're just making breakfast. Uh, just come and eat and leave when you want. And all the guys are like, I don't know if I believe this guy right now. <laughs> right? Who's gone to a church where it's like literally there's going to be no teachings, no, they just eat together. And I just sit back in the corner. I watch these guys. who are like, well, I'll come and eat, but I'm split. And I got a lot of stuff. I'm going to chop wood and stuff. They're over there, chatty Cathy's the whole time, just talking to each other. Nothing, you know, prescribed. They're just doing it. So I love it. And ladies, we do have like the ladies lunch and ladies dinner, a couple other ladies events that are happening. And the goal is, is this, that we just want to provide those opportunities to get to know each other, right? And break into this family here at Cornerstone. So uh, there you go. Um, the hot dog fundraiser stuff, I just want a quick note on that. I think that's super cool because we used to do a rummage sale, right? And uh, we all know, I've talked plenty about how the rummage sale went. And uh, um, it's, so, it's so simple. The, CJ's idea and, and the youth staff's idea, you know, like, let's just sell hot dogs. And I'm like, that would hurt me inside physically if I realized I could have not have done rummage sales, <laughs> but instead sold hot dogs. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a glowing success. So, um, yeah, there are some pictures floating around with me. I'm holding, like, my bottom plate uh, right here. And the top, I got the last hot dog underneath my chin. And I'm, I walk up yesterday, and I, uh, and I, there's a, I don't even know the girl's name, actually, that was working the little money thing. And Sayla. Sayla. <laughs> I didn't know if you were, like, you know, giving a chant or something, but Sayla. Uh, that's her name. She... <laughs> <laughs> Quiet, Jada, not now. No, that, that's the girl's name, I guess. So, 
Sayla's there, and I come up, I'm like, can I get uh, seven hot dog meals? And she laughs and looks at me, and I'm just like a little embarrassed. I'm like, no, I'm serious. I'll take seven of them. So and those, they weren't all for me, but of course, among my close guy group, those are the edited, uh, the photoshopped pictures that come out, is me, you know, with a towering thing of hot dogs. So anyways, for those of you that came out um, and did that, I appreciate you supporting the youth and getting those kids to camp. Four or 500 bucks a kid is a lot to send to camp, right? That's hard to do. So by everybody pitching in and eating lunch with us, we're able to send them for um, a lot less. So I appreciate that. All right. So if you know where we're at, we are, in the, we are working through the book of Acts. We're in chapter 2. We're going to be going over the same verses that uh, Jack just read, 33 through 41. So if you want to turn there, let me give you a summary of the sermon so far. Because we are in the first sermon uh, in the New Testament, it's the first, it's the first sermon given um, by the apostles, by Christians, and so we can call it the first Christian sermon. Uh, we're in part three of that. We took three weeks to look at it, and I changed what I was going to do today. And so I, I literally don't know how this is going to come across, but I just got into some stuff, and I was listening, I was working through some like Kent Hughes, some John Piper, some R.C. Sproul, some Jonathan Edwards. I'm like... We might need to, we're not going to elongate the series. You don't have to worry about that. But I'm going to rope a little bit more into next week going into our next section of text. We're going to kind of uh, merge the two together a little bit. Uh, but where we're at right now is uh, Jesus has ascended and told the disciples to wait. He's going he's to give them the promised Holy Spirit. And so they are waiting. There, uh, those, they, they obviously fill the place of Judas. And so now there's 12 uh, apostles now, and they're waiting like they're supposed to. There's about 108 others that are um, gathered around with them. A total of about 120 are there, and uh, they devoted themselves to to prayer and worship. And um, on the day of Pentecost, which is 50 days after uh, Passover, and uh, Pentecost means 50 or 50th, and so that's where that uh, name came from. This was part of a festival that they'd come and they'd celebrate the first of the harvest. They had kind of two harvests because of their weather patterns. They were celebrating the first one, and that's kind of what the Passover was. Then they'd have some feasts and just praise God for the blessings that they get from these uh, harvests. And then uh, and Pentecost would be on the f- uh, 50th day after that. And on that day, uh, the Lord uh, poured down the Holy Spirit on these people. And they began uh, what, what we read as speaking in tongues. And so then we had to deal with what does that mean. And this text is very simple. It's very plain. There's no guessing. There's no, well, what about this or that? It says it like several times. I'm not going to go over it again. You can go listen to the previous sermons. But they were speaking in different languages. And we know that because the Bible says in its original language, they were speaking in different languages. And so we just read the Bible for what it is right there. And that's why all these people from about 15 different uh, linguistic cultures could understand what was being preached in their own language. And uh, so some, though, that were that when they would hear what I believe was happening is they could hear uh, other languages. And I, I'm not going to attempt that again, but I did attempt to speak a little French in here a couple weeks ago. It was horrendous. But I did that to show that we can get the idea of why it would appear like, oh, man, Brian's drunk up there. 
And so at the very beginning, Peter stands up and he addresses that. We're not drunk. It's far too early for that. We're filled with the Spirit instead and we're preaching the wonderful things that God has done. And then he goes on to preach and he, uh, he says, it was, well, what, did you, uh, what you are experiencing now was prophesied long ago. This isn't new or shocking. Just as everything about the Messiah was prophesied so that we would know this is, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, then this also pouring out of the Spirit should have been not shocking. It should have immediately be connected connected to Joel chapter 2 verses 28 through 32 where it says that the Lord would do this. So what Peter says is that's what you're experiencing yet again uh, the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures here proving that Jesus Christ is the Messiah because that is the big question right? Check this out. Uh, People are more spiritual in the world and in our country today than previously which is interesting to me because what I read from that is that we in our nature are able to to know there's something bigger than us. There is a spiritual world. And if there is a spiritual world that lends itself to spiritual beings and possibly a higher power, in fact, the vast majority of the world and our country, which the statistics of the country actually reflect, oh, sorry, the statistics of the world actually reflect what our country is, uh, where right around 80%, depending on how you do the study, up to 87% um, is kind of the number you run into a lot, believes that there is a higher power. So what does that tell us? People believe there's, there's a higher power. There's something else going on besides us. But we just don't know what it is. And they're searching for that. Unfortunately, they look in crystals and stars for it. And so what they're doing is they're attributing it to the creation rather than the creator, right? Amen. So what we come to is, again, them saying, this is what is prophesied. This is what uh, you should be expecting as these things are fulfilled. Next would be the Spirit. And that's what's happening. He goes on to preach about all the wonderful things God has done. And then he says, This Jesus was appointed by God, endorsed by God, confirmed by God, was betrayed and handed over and killed within the prearranged plan of the Father. Now, there's this, that run on sentence I just had there uh, is very important. There's a lot of things happening there, but you'd have to listen to last week's sermon for that. Um, the plan was to save repentant sinners. The work of Jesus on the cross paid for the sins of many. And then at a point in there, and, I, and actually this isn't the last time you'll see Peter do this, he tells them that you crucified Jesus. And so we go back to the context to remind ourselves what's happening, right? Jesus was just crucified for claiming what he is. And then Peter's saying, Jesus was claimed what he is. In fact, the God that you guys are all here to thank is the one that endorsed that Jesus. And then you crucified him. And also, now we step back even more. And what we see is that... Uh, if there was ever a time where you'd want to find a packed Jerusalem where people traveled from all areas to come into one place, it would be in this moment. So not only is the crowd large now, but also we would expect that there weren't thousands and thousands and thousands of people with hammers nailing Jesus to the cross. So there's people that may be confused about how did I crucify Jesus? And we spent some time talking about that also.
And then after he described that who, who God is and how he endorsed Jesus and Jesus was the fulfillment of everything these people are celebrating and then that you crucified him. It's, he goes on to say, but Jesus was raised from the grave according to that same prearranged plan. In fact, uh, when King David in Psalms chapter 16, 8 through 11 uh, says, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. What they realize is that David wasn't talking about himself because we have David's grave. His body did rot in there. What was David talking about? He was talking about Jesus Christ. He was prophesying about him. And then this King Jesus was raised and now not just raised and walked and showed himself to over 400 people saying, Look, I've beat death. I raised from the dead like I told you I would. I am the Messiah. There's no other proof needed. This is the peak of the proof that you could possibly want, right? Beaten and crucified on the cross in front of people who were professional murderers. Said was dead, put in a tomb. Three days laid there. And then came forth out alive. Exactly what he had said he would do in the same time that he said he would do it. Now is not just roaming around earth weak and recovering, but has ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father. And then we're going to continue into that uh, same notion here at Jesus at the right hand. But let's pray before we get into our text. Father, as we study your word, um, just merely knowing the truth doesn't save us from the eternal torments of hell. And that's shocking for some of us. God, I pray that as we study your word, that we would receive it by the means of faith and that it would transform us, that as we turn away from things that are false, we turn to things that are true and that would change our lives. And so we pray yet again, as we have several hundred times, that as we come here to Cornerstone and when we leave, we would never be the same. We'd be changed every time we're here. By your power, not by eloquent speaking, not by very loving people, um, but through you. And we submit to that you expedite your plan and even your characteristics even through your people at times. And we thank you for the people that have gathered at Cornerstone here and, there's, and the other Christians, millions of them around the world gathering to worship and praise you. What a glorious day that we can be a part of. We love you and in Jesus Christ's name, amen. So we're going to start with 33 through 35. So if you have your Bibles, go and turn there. If you have any electronic devices, go for it. Um, try not to click on the little button that has a speaker. I'll just warn you, since it's been like my 50th time having this happen, it will read out loud the text. Okay. So just try to stay away from that button. Uh, let's let's uh, follow along here. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as He had promised, gave Him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us. 
Just as you see and hear today, for David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, make them a footstool under your feet. One unique thing to notice here, oftentimes we see the Trinitarian God very much acting and looking as one. Right? And every now and again, we get to see the different parts and their uniqueness and beauty. Right? Like uh, the baptism of Jesus. You see Jesus, you, the, the, the second person of the Trinitarian God, being baptized. You see the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinitarian God, descending on Him like a dove. And then you hear the voice of the Father in Heaven say, this is my beloved Son. So you see that separation, but yet still oneness. And here you see that again, where Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God and the Holy Spirit is given then to pour down on his followers. Kind of special. As we, that's, a, that's part of the theology of God. We're learning about who God is there. And it's something that we have nothing to compare it to. Um, I, as much as I don't like the egg because it kind of teaches modalism, uh, uh, you know, you have the shell, the yolk, and the white, but it's all an egg, you know. Um, I don't really like it because they can be separated easily, and they can be very different, right? Uh, but at the same time, um, I think for us, we have nothing good to compare it to. Any comparison we make is going to fall short of what, the, of what the Trinity really is. So, anyways, when we see it in Scripture, it's kind of neat. When we kind of see the togetherness, the oneness, like I and the Father are one, but also like in the uniqueness of it. Uh, he is exalted to the highest honor, the right hand of God. In that place, they are ruling together. Uh, at the right hand, they're still ruling authority. And there is where Jesus sits. And now imagine, right? Think of the context. Because first, what we realize is, and as we try to understand what's being taught, we have to realize this isn't written directly to you, right? This is written this is written to, well, to Theophilus and the people then, and it's recording what Peter said to a group of people in Jerusalem. So let's understand that first, and then, and then be able to apply it into our lives, because we know that God has preserved this for us to be able to be equipped for every good work and to be able to live and be complete, right? And so first, there's these people in Jerusalem that have gathered around. They heard the Holy Spirit descending, and they saw the tongues of fire. And they come, and they join, and they begin to listen to this sermon. And uh, the one that, he, that he's saying, you crucified that, him. You thought he was claiming something he wasn't, blasphemy. He said he was Lord, and God affirmed that. And then you crucified him and said, no, you disagreed with God. And then you murdered God. And then... Right here, now where is he? Well, he has beat all that because he is supreme. And now he's, that same one you crucified sits at the right hand of God with ruling and judgment power over you. And, and what, the reason I'm bringing that out is because there's a question they're going to ask later on that's very important. And these are the types of things that cause that question. King David's quote here. Let me read it. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. Now, some may, um, it, I mean, it's, it's common knowledge what King David's talking about. But if you weren't alert or thinking about it, maybe you could think that like, oh, God was going to humble the people King David rules and then King David's going to put his feet on them. It's like, no, 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 no. King David is yet again speaking of my Lord said to my Lord, Father in heaven said to my Jesus, my Lord. Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool for your feet. 
Well, who are the enemies? Think about what Peter's talking about. Think about what these people are thinking, right? Who are the enemies? They're the ones that are like hiding the hammers, like, oh no. Am I going to be the footstool? Or am I going to be an heir? This making them a footstool under his feet was pointing back yet again. What Peter does a lot is point to Scripture, point to Scripture, point to Scripture. And that's important because I think as Peter gives this sermon, it's a really neat template for how sermons should be preached. And Peter's using Scripture, right, to talk about what is true. This making them a footstool under your feet. Psalms 110, we see it. Um, as we just read, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, uh, talking about Jesus is higher than the angels. He said, well, what angels have I told that I'd make his enemies a footstool? And some of us are like, yeah, 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 Brian. Like, little details, move on, I'm getting bored. Check this out, though. What's important is, do you know of any religions near us that believe that Jesus was just an angel? Yes, you do. So we believe the Bible. And so when, when different religions come to us and say, we're the same, we believe the same thing. There are certain things we need to know. How do we know these things? How do we know that Jesus wasn't just an angel? These things are important, not necessarily the point of the sermon here, so we'll go into it, but these things are important to be uh, picking up. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25. Jesus rules and destroys death. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 13. Jesus is better than the earthly priests. Again, as these people that would have been listening um, in Corinthians, when Paul wrote that letter, they, the priests were the ones that kind of mediated. Well, it's really hard, and we all know this, if you guys have ever been stuck in a habit or you have this tradition that's hard to kick, okay? Uh, there's, uh, I went to a church, um, and there were some kids running in the church. And, uh, and there was this tradition before the current pastor where it was a sin to run in the church. Um, if this were a tabernacle and they're in the Holy of Holies, then yes, I would agree, and they would be dead all at the same time. But this is just a building, and we proved that during COVID, and we can't beat that horse any more than we have. Okay? The church are the people that gather together. Wherever we are, that's where the church is. Okay? And so in this, there are some old habits that are very hard and rituals that are very hard to be able to see the truth through sometimes. And so then as you've spent, you've been taught and you've been raised with these high priests mediating before you and the certain tribe picked to be those people that do that and, and how they came about being priests and high priests is very important. And then you're traveling to go see these high priests and they perform a very important task on behalf of the Lord until Jesus comes and raises from the dead and rips the curtain so then that we can have this priestly effect. Also, Jesus being the ultimate high priest forever. That we can now go in the presence of the Lord like that. So then to be taught in Hebrews using this same text. Did he tell the high priests that were from, the tri- from this tribe that he would make their enemies a footstool? No. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. He's higher, he's greater. Through Hebrews, if you read through Hebrews, what you see is constantly the author is pressing Jesus higher and higher and higher, trying to get people to see that Jesus is separate. He is higher, he's in authority, he's greater than over and over and over again. So this whole message is elevating Jesus. This whole text, sorry. This whole text is elevating Jesus in the same sense he just said, you killed him, remember? You crucified him, and yet you're here celebrating the one, waiting for the one to come, and he already did, and you killed him. And then now, where is he? 
Well, he's wandering around and he's not very happy. I'm going to try to avoid him. No, he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. I mean, ruling power and authority. We go on, verse 36 through 37. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, there it is again, to be both Lord and Messiah. Verse 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? I love this. I mean, I wouldn't want to be there and be like them going through this moment because I feel like I'm on the other side of this moment right now. But I do believe everybody goes through this moment. If you're a follower of Jesus, you had this moment where you said, what do I do then? Let's work through it though. So just like I had showed uh, moments earlier, elevating Jesus as he's saying, you crucified them. And I've made a grave mistake. Where is this Jesus? He's at the right hand of the Father, ruling in authority. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Let's look at a couple things. First, let everyone in Israel know. You remember how Jesus said in the Great Commission, go here and spread the gospel, go here and spread the gospel, go here and spread the gospel, to the ends of the earth spread, spread the gospel. Well, as they're here, let everyone in Israel know. Know what? For certain that God, because it is different if somebody else says this, or if somebody else appointed or endorsed Jesus, because that was happening all the time, right? Uh, and there was corruption in who they were ador- endorsing. Have you guys ever experienced that before? Maybe. Okay. This Jesus, which one? The one they just described, the Jesus of Nazareth. Very specific. There's no ambiguity here. This Jesus, the one who we've been talking about, whom you crucified, is what? This is important. This is going to cut their hearts. Lord and Messiah. See, the people that were the audience to Peter and the apostles were actually waiting for the Lord and the Messiah. They thought the Lord and the Messiah would deliver differently, would save differently, got distracted, misled, and crucified the wrong one. The one they're there celebrating, coming together for. God had said and endorsed and appointed this Jesus, the one we're just talking about, is Lord and Messiah, and you crucified him again. This is some fire and brimstone. You know, there's people in here that if, that if maybe I preach like this regularly, you guys would be like, that guy is just too much, man. He is just too much. He's always saying I crucified Jesus. He's always calling me a sinner. Well, here's the reality. I may lean into the sinner part. Because I think what the, what the, what the river of, the, of our culture is doing, the flow of the river of our culture, is trying to just like esteem you. Right? And, and their solution for everything is you need self-esteem. And then you'll feel good about yourself. Well, deep down inside, just like we're all looking for the higher power that the vast majority of the entire world knows there's a higher power and there's a spiritual world. I think that similarly, we know that we need something we don't have. 
And, and to be honest, like this is, this is my, I'm not sure how I'm going to say this, okay? But I'm going to get through it, and then we'll just work through it after that, okay? Now, I think that as we, we don't know where to get this information from. We don't necessarily have the answer. We're not sure of it. But then what do we fill ourselves with? I mean, if we looked at how much time, and, I, and I'm not demonizing any of this stuff. Hey, hear me out. I'm not demonizing any of this stuff. But how much time do we spend on Facebook, on Instagram, or YouTube, or watching shows, or listening to this radio broadcast, or listening to this podcast, and has nothing to do with glorifying God or the truth of Scripture. It's just other stuff. And we're filling ourselves with it. And so why do we constantly feel like, maybe the problem is I don't, I don't value myself enough. That might actually be part of a problem, right? But their solution is that you have to be important. Where I don't think you valuing yourself comes from you being important. I think what your value comes from realizing that you're a child of God created by the creator and sustainer of the universe. And then that he's so loved that he came and died for you. And then in that, yeah, you can see your value. And in the end, it's not that you can look at him, even realize that God's desire is not that like, I'm just so lonely in heaven. I really want Kayla today. I don't want to spend time with, let's go grab coffee. Anybody, somebody. It's just really because of agape love. His love for you isn't even necessarily because of what he's going to get in return. His love for you is because he is God and he loves. And his purpose in creating us and loving us and redeeming us is that he is glorified. That's not what the world teaches us. Even in secular churches. That's not a real thing. That's a perceived thing. Okay. Uh, there are churches that even teach this stuff. And I would consider them secular teachings. Okay, and here's the difference. Think about Peter's sermon right here. I don't think every sermon has to be like this. But this is a good sermon. Now, there's certain churches you go to where you'll never hear about your sin. What you'll hear about is maybe something that they'll phrase it like this often. They're like, we're just broken. And it's almost phrased to you like you're a victim. You were victimized in this. And Jesus came to pull you out of your victimization. And, and Peter says, no, you crucified Jesus. You're a sinner in need of a Savior, and you're awaiting for the Savior. The Savior came, and you wanted some other geopolitical redemption. And instead, he said, I came to heal the sick and save you from your sins and to be able to rescue you from the eternal torments of hell, which you deserve. And they're like, well, we don't deserve this. And Jesus said, yes, you do. He says, you're right, you don't. So what is it? What could it possibly, possibly be then? And Jesus teaches very clearly one of our key passages. We go back to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. That we're saved by grace through faith. And then, and then you step back and we're like, why would that even happen? And he says, because God's so loved. Because of love, he came and decided to do that. And our love is so cattywampus here on earth. We project that onto the Lord. We don't have time for that today. I'm already way off track here. But we don't have time for that. But our perception of love, we have to then go back and redefine what it is the love that God is talking about in that passage. But let's move on for the sake of time. Because there's another important part here. This is the question they come to. And good sermons do this. Your conversations with people, as you're talking to them and you have these conversations where they begin to realize, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior and it's Jesus Christ alone. They say this, what do I do? And then this is where we get into this part and I begin 
to be like, we need a little bit more time. And so that's why next week, we're going to blend next week's passage into kind of answering this question. Let's, uh, let's look at his answer. Peter replied, each of you, like note that, each of you, there's no group experience, there's, we're not all signing the same paper, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and then be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, your children, and those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all of his brothers, all sorry, all of the listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So then Peter goes on, he, he says more words than this. This is uh, Luke saying, this is essentially what he said, this is the meat of it, and then summarizes more things saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation was part of the summary. Those who believe, believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, 3,000. I don't believe it's because Peter was gifted. I think it's the power of the truth in a heart that has been called, responding to the truth. But this creates, this creates something that I think is really important, right? As we start Acts... I'd hate to get through Acts and be like, oh man, I should have went back. We should have talked about this. Because it says all who believed. So those who all believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church. But when asked what do you do, it's repent of your sins and turn to God and then be baptized uh, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And so then it creates this question, I think, that needs to be addressed because there's a lot of confusion around it, which is like, what does it actually mean to, to believe Right? So I'm in the middle of this. Like, Say, Brian, say I'm in this point where I'm asking, what do I do? What does believe mean? What does repent mean? Uh, what does turn to God? What, what part does baptism have in all of this? Right? And one of the things that comes to my mind, well, first, let's blast through these. Repentance. Metanoia is a verb. It's the repentance verb. It's the, it, oftentimes we refer to it as like turning away, turning away from, right? Which is, that's a good way to look at it. What it technically means when, it, when, when these people were saying it was to change one's mind or purpose. It'd be like saying, I change my mind. I change the inner man. It's these two words kind of brought together. One is meta, which is change after being with. Meta, change after being with. And then... Uh, Etoya, which is think. So I change how I think after I've been with. Like there's something big changing. And it's turning away from something, right? Because even in our text, it says, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. Not, re not repent of your sins and then be baptized. There's this and turn to God. So there is this turning away, a change of mind, a purpose, the inner of who you are changes. You reorient yourself towards something else. Acts chapter 3, verse 19 has the same type of language. Now repent of your sins and turn to God. I like that it says that because the prophets were saying, repent of your sins and turn to God. John the Baptist was saying, repent of your sins and turn to God. Jesus says, repent of your sins and turn to God. I and the Father are one. And then Peter, 
after Jesus ascends to heaven and says, repent of your sins and turn to God. It's been the message, people. And there can't be confusion around it. So that's the repentance. Then be baptized. What did baptism look like around Jesus and John the Baptist? Believers who had repented and placed their faith in God were submerged. The root baptismo, baptizo means to submerge. So some people are like, why do you drown people when you baptize? Why can't you just like sprinkle them or flick water on them? Well, it says Jesus came up out of the water. We see these people finding places that they have a cup of water. They can splash it in their face, but they go somewhere and they use this word submerge over and over again. So what do we do? We submerge you. Like, and that's just because we think that's most accurately how it's done. Now, there's certain situations where we can't submerge people. And so, yeah, um, because we don't think that baptism is salvational in the sense of that it saves you, we can symbolize this other ways. But if you're able, yeah, we're going to get you in water and then we're going to submerge you. And then you're going to come up out of the water as Jesus came out of the grave. The, one of the questions is, does it save you? No. But check this out. But it is, but separating it from the saving is so difficult that Peter later uses the word baptism in a way to indicate belief, repentance, and faith. He uses the word baptism. Because that was, not only did they say it, but they showed it. It's like this full circle thing. 3,000 men, women, and children were added to the kingdom that day because they changed their mind, their way of thinking, changed their mind, responded to the gospel. The calling was there. They responded to it. It was irresistible to them. And then they're saved. So what is this repent, baptize, faith, believe thing? I don't think it's any mistake that in the gospel of John, we don't see faith and we don't see belief at all. In the gospel of John, what we see 98 times is the verb, the action, the doing of believe. 98 times. One of the things that I think is very important for our, what we would call cultural Christians, okay? Those would be Christians that identify as Christian, but I do not believe are saved. They're just there for the party. Here's what I think is going on. They hear believe, they interpret believe, how you and I use believe. And they think that they're saved because they believe it's true. If you're concerned about orthodoxy, the ones with some of the best orthodoxy are demons. They absolutely believe. They shudder. They know the power. They've experienced the power. They even call Jesus the Lord. They know who God is. In fact, Satan himself admits that Jesus is Lord. So that's not enough. That's not a, in that sense of belief. So what is it? So next week, I am um, determined to make it very clear what it means to hear that you need a Savior and that it's in Christ alone. And then if you're there saying, okay, what do I do? My goal next week is that every single person in here is going to completely understand what it means to respond to the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, spend three weeks looking at a sermon that Peter preached by your power, with your truth, the message you wanted people to hear starting in Jerusalem and going out to the ends of the earth is that we are sinners in need of this Savior. 
The Savior is the Jesus of Nazareth. And in some way and in some form, we have had a part in the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. Our sin was paid there. We were part of what you so loved. We were given this gift, given by grace, accepted through faith. And yet there are people, and we praise you for the people here, and we thank you for the people here that are here listening, just trying to learn and understand, and they're searching for that higher power that 87 plus percent of us in the world are looking for. And they say, what do I do now? If I believe that, how then is the saving work of Christ on the cross applied to my account? God, I, I pray that I made the right decision in not answering that this morning and that um, that question will be like an infection in the heart over the next seven days. What does it actually mean to respond to your good news and to be redeemed? God, give us clarity on that. Challenge our hearts. And encourage us to continue studying your word, submitting to the truth, and learning what you know your people need to hear. And sometimes that's sin, and sometimes that's joy, sometimes that's value in light of who you are and what you've done with us and why you created us. Maybe it's hope. Maybe it's becoming sober-minded. Maybe it's sacrifice. Maybe it's repentance. God, challenge our hearts with those things. Let us never be the same. And yet each week we pray that you would give us encouragement for this week. We love you, and in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We hope that you found it encouraging and challenging. Please feel free to share this podcast with friends and family, and we will see you all next week.